This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Jonathan Shanzer. Jonathan is the Senior Vice President of Research for the Defense of Democracy. Prior to that, he was a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Department of Treasury. He's the author of multiple books, including State of Failure, Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas, and the Unmaking of the Palestinian State, Hamas versus Fatah, the Struggle for Palestine, and Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. And now, without further ado, Jonathan Chancer. Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, for doing this today. I really appreciate Let's you. Let's do it. Taking yeah, the time. let's roll. Absolutely, let's, I like the background. I love the I like the whole setup over there. <laughs> I like your background too. Um, I'm working on a li- my library is in the middle of a uh, remodel upstairs, but it's about to look a lot like like yours in the next nice. month or so. Um, right now, books are scattered all throughout the house, to include yours right here. Nice. Oh, look at that. That makes that makes me happy. Love it. Oh. Love it. So glad. I want to encourage everybody to buy all of these and read. More importantly read all of these and then uh, recommend them to other people who are interested in what's going on in that part of the world. Um, you've done an incredible service by by writing these and they are definitely, um, they have a, uh, I, say, I mean, I guess a different perspective than a lot of the other books that I've read, but they, I thought I was fairly well versed in Hamas, Hezbollah, Israel, Gaza, West Bank, and Lebanon, Iran. But these books really did uh, add to that foundation of whatever knowledge I've gained up to this Makes point. Makes me Thank happy to hear so that's, for that, that. That's the only reason why I write. So glad well, to hear it. It is sincerely yeah. appreciated. And I know we have limited time, so I want to hop yep. right in. And I'm probably not going to get to all the questions I, I have for you. I could probably talk to you for days. Um, but let's jump right in with uh, Israeli security doctrine. What it was and has it changed? Um, and I can only assume, yes, it will change going forward. Um, but are we going to have a new Israel doctrine that uh, people will come to know in the weeks, months, and years ahead? Yeah, I think so. I think 10-7 changed a lot. Um, I think that first it's important to note that there was a massive intelligence failure leading up to the 10-7 attack. The Israelis believed. Uh, wrongly, that uh, the leaders of Hamas were deterred, that they were no longer interested in inviting disastrous wars uh, upon uh, the people of Gaza. And uh, that was uh, all just shattered on 10-7. There will be heads rolling across the entire Israeli security establishment, and that will lead to new people coming in, creating new doctrines. Uh, these doctrines will, I think, um, be based on the idea that attacks like 10-7 can happen again um, and that the dangers in Gaza must be contained with new borders and new security situations, new border crossings. There will need to be, I think, a complete rethinking and overhaul of what is allowed in and out of the Gaza Strip and how deep uh, or how close, rather, uh, the people of Gaza will be able to get to Israel's borders at all. So we're talking about probably mines and concertina wire and snipers and, right, I mean, like full DMZ is my guess in the Gaza Strip. And I'm guessing that at some point we'll see the same 
in Lebanon as well. Uh, there was just a speech delivered uh, on Friday morning by Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah. He's indicated that um, that border is going to remain tense for the foreseeable future and that there are potential battles ahead. He appears to be deterred now by American aircraft carriers and by the Israelis. But uh, that remains a very dangerous front that Israel will also need to handle. Um, there's going to be questions about how to handle Iran long term, too. You know, if Iran stands behind this and we have every belief, every reason to believe that they were the brains and money and training behind the attack of 10-7 and all the subsequent mess that we've seen since then, there's going to be a, um, I think, a, a rethinking of how urgent it will be to bring down the regime itself um, and to weaken it in every way possible. So I would expect a much more aggressive posture from the Israelis soon. Yeah. And for those who uh, I, I've been having podcasts discussing Israel, particularly Hamas, but for those who uh, kind of remember the the cover of a Newsweek or Time magazine back in the 80s and 87 and have heard Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, Gaza, West Bank, Lebanon. Um, for those that have that kind of an understanding of the world, um, can you go back a little bit? Because your history of Hamas in particular is is so fascinating and so so nuanced and so so thoughtful. Um, can you give a people that uh, are kind of confused on what's going on in this area of of the world and just see Hamas, Hezbollah, terrorist organizations? I kind of get an idea of what's going on. They want to push Israel into the sea, but uh, a brief history of Hamas. Uh, how did Gaza come to be? I know Egypt had it at the end of the nineteen forty eight war uh does share a border with uh with egypt that uh people don't talk about we're in the news that often um we mostly just talk about israel and gaza but not egypt and gaza um, but can you talk about that history of gaza how this came to be how uh the palestinians came to to be there and the rise of hamas so just a really simple question then, right? Just really short. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, look, for uh, a more nuanced uh, question, be, be sure to pick up these books for sure and read thank them. Thank you. Thank it's, you. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're um, kind of the once over. Yeah. No, uh, look, I'll, I'll try to explain it as succinctly as, as possible. Um, Gaza uh, could have been uh, very clearly defined as uh, part of a Palestinian state uh, pursuant to a, uh, a a UN brokered agreement that the Palestinians rejected in 1948 uh, when Israel was declared, this was called the Partition Plan. Um, and uh, is that the, the war... three nos. When does the three nos come in? The three nos comes after 1967, okay. 19, not 1948. But but really, the essence is the same, which is that the Palestinians and the Arab world have consistently rejected a two state solution with Israel, and then they uh, push themselves into war. They lose those wars, and then they you know uh, they 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 lose leverage and they lose territory time and again. So Gaza could have been part of uh, an officially recognized Palestinian state in 48. It wasn't. Israel goes on to win the war of 1948. And what you have is the West Bank and the Gaza Strip under the occupation, literally, of other countries in the region. So the Jordanians occupy uh, the West Bank and Egypt occupies the Gaza Strip. That goes on until 1967. There's another war, again, with all the Arab states looking to destroy Israel. Israel conquers the, then the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. 
And it's at that moment that everybody starts to talk about them as occupied territories because the Israelis now control them and it's against the will of the people. They were occupied before. No one called it that. Um, but what happens after that is um, kind of an uneasy 20 years of Palestinian nationalism kind of growing organically in these two places. And then in 87, uh, we see what's known as the Intifada, Palestinian uprising. It is a spontaneous attempt to try to undermine the Israeli presence in Gaza. And it actually leads to uh, a, a peace process between the Palestinians and Israelis throughout the 1990s. The problem is, is that at that same time, we see the rise of an organization called Hamas. Hamas begins to carry out terrorist attacks against Israel throughout the 1990s. They have two goals. One is to kill as many Israelis and as many Jews as possible. And that's been consistent with Hamas's worldview from the get-go. But the other is to try to derail this peace process that was underway that could have actually led to a renewed two-state solution. Hamas carries out suicide bombings for the better part of a decade. And then the peace process ultimately collapses in the year 2000. Hamas, you could argue, prevailed in weakening the uh, the ties between the, pragma the pragmatists on, it, within Palestinian society and Israel. And um, what happens after that, the year 2000, we see um, the outbreak of the Second Intifada, as it's known. This is a brutal campaign of suicide bombings and horrific attacks throughout Israel. Israel responds by targeting Hamas and any other terrorist group that attacks it. Um, and um, that all ends by 2005. But the problem is, is that by then, it's total chaos within the Palestinian territories. And, um, and then really one of the most idiotic chapters in American foreign policy is written. And that is when George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice say, hey, you know what? Uh, they are completely chaotic in the West Bank and Gaza right now, but hey, let's hold an election and let's let Hamas take part in this election. The same group that's been bombing Israelis, carrying out suicide bombings and trying to disrupt the peace process. Let's give them a stake in the Palestinian political arena. And everybody said, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. The Palestinian Authority will remain in the hands of the pragmatists. Well, as it turns out, in 2006, the election results come in and Hamas wins and they want to take over the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And the Israelis say no. The Americans say no. And um, this leads to a standoff that is finally shattered in the in the year 2007. It's the most fateful year in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, in my view. Um Hamas takes over the Gaza Strip by force. It's a brutal war. They kill their own people. They push them off of tall buildings to their deaths. They shoot them in the legs and arms to ensure permanent disability. It's a civil war. And ever since then, ever since then, we have seen, this is now 16 years running, Hamas has had its own territory. It's had its own little statelet. It's not recognized by anybody, but it is a little mini Taliban like state, controlled by a terrorist organization. And since that time, they've carried out uh, rocket wars against Israel, 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021, and now this current conflict. Israel each time has been able to absorb 
the rocket fire through better technology and better defenses. Iron Dome, you may have heard of this incredible uh, missile defense system. It's 90, 95% accurate. So, you know, you see Hamas firing off 3,000 rockets. The vast majority are not going to land in Israel, and it's saved countless lives on both sides. Uh, but what I think we've seen now since 10 7, this is bringing us full circle since the October 7th massacre. And just to be clear, it was, you know, you can see the pictures, you can see the video. It was a pogrom. It was 1,400 people just murdered in cold blood, 240 people taken hostage. The Israelis have made the decision that the status quo cannot continue, that Hamas cannot remain in control of the Gaza Strip any longer. And that's what this war is all about. It is, from Israel's perspective, it is an effort to completely destroy uh, uh, Hamas and the Gaza Strip. It's not unlike what we saw with ISIS with our own challenges there. We made a decision, that's it. If this organization can no longer exist. Now, of course, there's still remnants that we can see throughout the Middle East, but we destroyed the caliphate, as it were, and that has left uh, uh, ISIS homeless. This is, I think, going to be the goal for the Israelis. And for now, it looks like the US has Israel's back. Yeah, I want to get to that uh, U.S. foreign policy that uh, led to the election of Hamas, uh, essentially, uh, and also the civil war uh, that uh, that takes place. The people don't really I haven't heard anyone really talk about that in the in the news um, as of as of late anyway. Um, but going back to 1967 and 1987, I found it fascinating that it, and when I was reading about it, it seemed almost like people in Southern California going to Tijuana to get uh, dental work done or see a doctor down there or get prescription medication or buy goods that are cheaper over there and then come back to San Diego. Um, it seemed like there was a period there uh, around 67, 87 timeframe in there where older Israelis uh, now look back on that time almost fondly with memories of going over there to oh, shop. Oh, it was the good old days. Yeah, it was the good old days. I mean, you know, it wasn't to say that things were lovely, uh, but they were peaceful. They were they, there was an, a sort of a status quo uh, that people could work with. And, yeah, it's where you went for, you know, if you wanted to feel like you were traveling to a foreign country, you know, if you were in Israel, you go there. Um, and there were thousands uh, upon thousands of Palestinian workers that uh, that would go to Israel to earn a, a, a decent wage. And there was a uh, there was a status quo that I think, you know, in retrospect, was what we'd like to see you know, across both territories today. Now, you know, obviously there are a lot of people who would like to see a two-state solution, ultimately see a Palestinian state. And, you know, I I, I don't want to uh, throw cold water on that because I do think that, you know, in a perfect world, that is what we would try to aim for. Um, the problem has been, like I said, it's it's been disastrous uh, Palestinian leadership uh, throughout really terrible decisions that have been made that have pushed the uh, these two people to conflict rather than to uh, coexistence. And um, yeah, I think that period that you mentioned, those 20 years, was probably the peak of the coexistence, if you will. Um, it was not perfect. It was not always 100% peaceful, but there was a, a better uh, status quo than certainly what we've seen over the last, you know, 16 years, if not much longer. Yeah. And what happened in 1987 that led to the, uh, the first intifada? What was the, the trigger that led to that and, uh, sure. the creation of Hamas? 
Yeah, I mean, I you know I mentioned that that you know uh, a lot of Gazans were going to work in Israel. Uh, actually, what happened was there was a, a, a flatbed truck of laborers that were coming back after a long day of working in Israel, and there was a car accident. Uh, an Israeli military vehicle rear-ended that truck, leading to the deaths of some of those that were in it. And what happened was those people, it's customary in Islamic tradition to bury the dead immediately. So within hours, there were funeral uh, processions, and those funeral processions turned into chants of protest. And those chants of protests then led to larger rallies, and the rallies spread from Gaza City, uh, from the northern Gaza Strip, throughout all of the Gaza Strip, and then spread to the West Bank. And the next thing you know, there is an asymmetric uh, low-level battle going on, primarily with Palestinians throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails and things like that. But then quickly we be, we begin to see the rise of Hamas. And you know you have to remember also at the time the PLO, which had been the sort of the primary actor in Palestinian politics, they were not in the West Bank and they were not in the Gaza Strip. They were in exile in Tunisia. For those that know their history, there was a civil war where the Tuni where uh, where sorry the Lebanese were essentially hijacked, right, by the PLO. They had become a state within a state and they were attacking Israel. And Israel went in, not unlike what we're seeing right now. They said, this terrorist organization has to go. We are going to kick it out of the country. And it was disastrous for the Lebanese people to have this happen. But ultimately, we, we actually watched the PLO surrender and get on boats that took them to Tunisia. We could be seeing a very similar situation play out if things go the way I think the U.S. and Israel would like it to, to see the forced exile of Hamas. In other words, they're fighting right now with the intent to fight to the death. There could come a moment where, you know, they begin to look around and realize the rubble of Gaza is all on their heads and that maybe it's time for them to just simply pack up and leave. That would be the better of the options that I see in front of everybody right now. But really, I think it's going to depend on the Gaza-based uh, Hamas leadership and maybe, just maybe, some of their foreign patrons that could have influence mm. over Hamas. And there I'm talking about Iran, which, of course, I don't expect the Iranians to call for a ceasefire. They, you know, they will fight Israel to the last Palestinian. That is always been their strategy. They don't need to get their hands dirty. They get other people to fight their wars. Um, and it's amazing to me that that is still not understood widely in the United States or around the world. But it's not just Iran that I think that, that could have the, the influence here. I mean, there are other countries that are nominal allies of the United States. I think, by the way, I think it's embarrassing that they are. But, you know, consider the fact that Turkey, a NATO ally, is a patron of Hamas. There's a headquarters there and the Turks could say, guys, pack up, get out, save the 2.2 million people of Gaza, do it now. That would be one option. The other is the Qataris. Qataris are a major non-NATO ally. That is a an official label that we have given the Qataris. We've got our largest air base in the Middle East over there. We're fighting the war on terror. And right down the street from that Al-Udaid air base is a Hamas headquarters, right? These are countries that you could imagine could have a significant influence on the calculus of Hamas as this war drags on. Maybe we could try to precipitate a departure along the lines of what happened with the PLO in the early 1980s.
Now, uh, was was Hamas a splinter group of the Muslim Brotherhood at its inception? And what was from the get go? Was it always in opposition to Yasser Arafat? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's first of all, it was a splinter faction of the Brotherhood, which up until 1987, up until the Intifada had been peaceful, anti-Israel, but peaceful. And, uh, and and again, I think that is at least in some ways what explains the relative calm that we saw until the Intifada. And then you have the Brotherhood or elements of the Brotherhood say, you know what, this whole peaceful coexistence thing, nah, we're not doing that anymore. And so they create Hamas and Hamas begins to wage uh, war. The primary goal was waging war against Israel. But what happened was, is that when Hamas emerged, this is key to understanding the political dynamic in uh, in, in in the Palestinian arena. Uh, Arafat says, wow, I'm losing control here of the territories. Gaza and West Bank, you see these intifadas, the intifadas raging. And uh, I got to get back in the driver's seat in terms of being a, a you know a recognized leader of the Palestinians. So he says, hey, look at me over here. I'm in Tunisia and I'm going to recognize Israel right now and I'm going to start a peace process. He did this to outflank Hamas and Hamas was pissed. And so when you start to see them waging this war, this campaign of suicide bombings and other brutal violence throughout the uh, late 80s and, and throughout the 1990s, again, two objectives. One was to kill as many Jews as possible and to wage war against Israel. The second objective was to undermine the PLO and just to undermine the peace process in every way possible uh, and to, to get back into the driver's seat to be the unquestioned leader that they believed that they were going to be. And again, that, that gets us to the election that took place too. So they, when you think about Hamas's grievances, they've been thwarted twice. Right. They were thwarted once by Arafat in the late 80s, early 90s, when he was like, hey, I'm the I'm the leader that will make peace with Israel. Let's not deal with these Hamas guys right now. So that's the first time that Hamas gets sidelined. Then they have the election in 2006 and they get sidelined again. They win the election, but nobody lets them take over. So when you see their deep seated hatred and anti-Semitic, anti-Israel rhetoric, and you think about their history of being frustrated. This sort of gives you a picture of why we saw just absolutely unadulterated, brutal violence carried out by Hamas. Nothing justifies it, but you might begin to at least understand their mindset. They're already deeply violent jihadi organizations. It's a jihadist organization that, you know, gets you know, uh, it has an ideological affinity with groups like ISIS and, and Al Qaeda, same sort of intellectual basis for the building up of the ideology of this group. They get funding and training um, and weapons from Iran, and they hate Israel, and they've been thwarted multiple times as they've tried to assert their leadership. Um, it is palpable anger on the part of this organization. Yeah. And how did Hamas come to adopt suicide bombing as a uh, as a tactic? Um, Hezbollah, of course, is uh, is the one that people usually think about when they think about suicide bombings and uh, bringing that uh, normalizing. I think that within uh, Islamic jihadi groups. But uh, how did Hamas come to uh, to adopt suicide bombing as a as a, a weapon of of terror with strategic significance? It, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, suicide bombing was invented by Hezbollah. Uh, and we've seen, you know, I mean, in fact, the, some of the worst terrorist attacks against the United States uh, leading up to the 9-11 attacks. The worst one before that was the 1983 uh, Marine barracks bombing in Lebanon. It was engineered by Hezbollah, but it was invented by Iran. This idea that you know you become a martyr for the for the cause uh, in the name of of, of God. Um, this was a Hezbollah Iranian intervention, and then what you have is this strange moment in the early 1990s, where uh, the Israelis decide to uh, basically kick out a number of key Hamas figures from the territories and in exile, they find their way to Lebanon where they connect with Hezbollah and Hezbollah teaches them the tactic that they've used. And what I would say is that, you know, uh, we haven't seen a, a Hamas suicide attack in quite some time. And that's because Israel has created a, a barrier that is difficult to penetrate, or at least it has been up until now. Um, but, uh, you know, during the 1990s, it was a much more porous border and Palestinians were getting through and they were carrying out these kinds of attacks with regularity. Um, and um, and that extended well into the early 2000s. Uh, but Hamas, I, I think it's safe to say they perfected the tactic that Hezbollah and Iran invented. And and then it becomes something from Hamas. And, you know, this sort of I think this is where most Americans, I think, should go. Aha. OK, now I get it. Eye opening moment that became the basis for, you know, the paradigm adopted by Al Qaeda on 9-11 and by some of the other jihadist groups that the United States fought in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. It was the lineage was, you know, Iran, Hezbollah, then Hamas, then, you know, a number of these other terrorist groups fighting the United States. This has been the lineage of uh, of the suicide bombing. And we're seeing those in the 90s into the early 2000s. And what happens at Camp David with uh, Ehud Barak and Arafat and Clinton? We see those pictures right there. Um, what's uh, what, what happened in 2000 right there for people that remember the pictures but don't really understand what happened and the significance of what happened in 2000? Sure. So, uh, you know, you have the PLO working with Israel in the peace process. You've got Hamas trying to undermine it with all the attacks that we've mentioned. Uh, you know, there's the domestic sort of Palestinian political dimension, you know, the, the hatred that exists between these two factions and the Israelis uh, and the United States. Then it was Ehud Barak, the prime minister of Israel and Bill Clinton. Um, you know, they're looking at the end of the Clinton administration. They're saying, OK, this is the you know, the process has run its course. It's not been pretty. It's not been easy. But there is, you know, uh, uh, there there is a process in place, the Oslo process, as it was known. Uh, and Clinton, I think, eyeing a Nobel Prize and eyeing the end of his term in office says, guys, let's do this right now or never. So he invites Arafat and he invites Ehud Barak to Camp David and they try to hammer out an agreement. As best we understand, and there are people that still argue about exactly what was on the table, but you know, I mean, Bill Clinton's written about it, and I mean, countless other people that were in the room in Camp David will say that the Israelis offered somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of the West Bank and all of the Gaza Strip as a state. There would be, uh, you know, I think some unhappiness on the Palestinian side about full control over East Jerusalem, which is a goal of the Palestinian nationalist movement. And there would be only nominal acknowledgement of uh, 
Palestinians who became refugees in prior wars, but that there would be a state, um, you know, in these two territories. And uh, Arafat, who was the longstanding leader of the PLO, uh, which was a designated terror group until he um, recognized Israel's existence, he looks around and he says, if I do this, I'm going to lose the support of my people. This is, I believe, what his calculus was. And so he rejects the agreement that was offered to him by the Israelis in the United States in Camp David. And what happens is... Uh, immediately upon doing so, we see the launch of the Second Intifada. This was a war that was essentially declared by the PLO. Um, and then really what happened after that was that Hamas joined. And even though we had this friction between Hamas and the PLO over the years that they really hated each other for lots of different reasons, they join in common cause against Israel and they begin carrying out joint attacks against Israel. And Israel begins to respond with brutality. And this creates that chaotic moment that leads, like I said before, to the election of Hamas, the victory of Hamas, right? Hamas had become weakened so much so by Israel, um, or rather the PLO had been weakened so much by Israel as a result of Israelis attacking the PLO for launching this war that it allowed for Hamas to grow in relative strength. And this is kind of what leads to the split that we see today. It's complicated stuff. And, and the thing that that is just so hard is, you know, when you watch the, the, the coverage of this, it's so utterly simplified in mm. the American press, where it's just sort of like, oh, Israel occupies, uh, you know, Gaza or occupies the West Bank. And therefore, that's why, you know, they're fighting. Uh, you know, we've just spent like a half hour going through the incredible complexities here of this ongoing uh, conflict. And it is as much of a political contest between the Palestinian factions as it is a military contest between Israel and any one of these actors. And no one seems to take the time to parse this stuff and to unpack it. And and I, I think that's you know, when when your listeners and watchers here, you know, are trying to make sense of it all, just remember, it takes some reading. It takes some patience. It takes some understanding to get to this. Yes. Uh, yeah. And there are at least three books on the topic that I recommend. <laughs> That's right. It'll be in the show notes. And I, I mean, everyone needs to read these because what you get on cable news is you're walking by and trying to, you know, feed, get your kids to soccer or whatever you're you're doing in life, get them to school and you're catching that one minute and 30 second soundbite, that two minute, two and a half minutes tops when you're looking at, at cable news in particular. Um, it, it's very tough to gain any sort of understanding of what's actually going on over there through those type of sound bites. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I'll really tell you, I, I, I can't watch. I mean, I keep American news on in the background. Um, I actually watch, uh, I try to watch the news as much as I can in uh, the region. So watch Israeli news. I'll, I mean, this morning I ended up watching, you know, Hezbollah television for a good chunk of the morning to see how the, the speech by Hassan Nasrallah was, was being aired and, and how it was being received. But, you know, these are not the things that the U.S. media will cover generally speaking. And, and you know, I, what I find is that when I watch the news out of the region, I'm usually about 20 minutes ahead of the news cycle. Mm. Um, so our news cycle is slower. Um, and it's just filled with people that don't fully get the big picture. 
that just only adds to the frustration. And I think, by the way, adds to the food fight that we're watching on campus and on, you know, uh, the sort of rallies and, you know, in favor or opposed to various groups. It has become a um, kind of a, a political football here in this country that just lacks seriousness over yeah. time. And that's why I was so excited that um, uh, that that you agreed to come on and talk because uh, a conversation like this that goes deeper, where there is nuance, where there is understanding, um, I, you have to have a foundation. If your foundation is one minute and thirty seconds of somebody that you see talking on television as you walk by who just got grabbed and thrown in there because they needed to fill a slot, uh, that's probably not the right. That that shouldn't be the basis of your understanding of this conflict or any any conflict. Um, but speaking of that and a, a, a lack of understanding, when we go to 2005, 2006, and we look at the Bush administration and we look at their policy here um, uh, in regards to uh, Hamas, Israel, elections in Gaza, uh, and the region as a whole, bringing democracy to this part of the world, uh, and perhaps the, the folly of that policy, um, what uh, Hamas runs, they win they're very popular, of course, uh, grassroots uh, and a terrorist organization, therefore, is now elected on the border of the country that they want to destroy. Um, yep. So uh, where do you think that understanding came from or where did that policy come from? I mean, we saw we tried it in Afghanistan. We had a few years uh, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq at this point by 2005, 2006. So we had a little bit of experience there to understand what was and was not working. Yet we, I don't know if encourage is the right word when we talk about U.S. policy towards Israel. Um, how do you see that period in history right there, 2005, 2006? Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, 2005 is when Arafat dies. Mahmoud Abbas comes in and there is a moment of hope thinking that, hey, we got a guy now that's not wearing, you know, army fatigues and a keffiyeh, right. right? You have a guy now who looks more like my accountant or my dentist <laughs> or something. And, hey, this is moderation and this is, you know, a better trajectory for the Palestinian people. And here's our moment to create another democracy as we're trying to do in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and... Um, you know, there was an attempt to kind of fold the Palestinians into the Bush doctrine, this idea of spreading democracy. And what I think we learned then, and I think what we learned subsequently in Iraq and Afghanistan is holding elections does not lead to democracy. Elections is actually probably one of the last stops on that line. Right? You've got to create institutions. You've got to create a tradition, a respect for, for the rule of law, um, a respect for uh, political debate, um, right? There needs to be a separation of powers. I mean, a whole range of things. By, by the way, a rejection of irredentist violence, right? Which, you know, I mean, all of this sort of stuff, I think should be obvious, but wasn't during our sort of flirtation with this. And, and I should say, full disclosure, I was a supporter of George W. Bush. I thought that he had at least a vision for something in the Middle East that, you know, at least was better than what we had been seeing, which was just, you know, it seemed like senseless violence. Um, I think in retrospect, it was a mistake that you cannot expect to transform societies like this without a multi-generational effort and quick fixes would have been great. I think they've failed. I think we've seen that now all over the place. And certainly we've lost here 
in the United States, we've lost a lot of blood and treasure with uh, with the mistakes that we've made. Um, but I, you know, I would say, you know, maybe it's a good moment to just point out here that the policy that came after that was just as wrongheaded and dangerous. This idea that we could contain terrorist groups in safe havens uh, like uh, Gaza, the idea that we could placate the Iranians with, you know, sanctions relief and pallets of cash to get them to not go nuclear when they're supporting all manner of horrific terrorist organizations all around the region um, and actively trying to destabilize us and our allies everywhere, you know, around the Middle East. All of this was just ridiculous that came after the other ridiculous policy. In other words, you know, I sort of watch this like a pendulum. It's like one idiotic policy after another, after another. What I'm hoping right now, just to bring bring us back to exactly where we are, the U.S. has just deployed two carrier groups to the Middle East. Got 4,000 Marines over there. We're doing everything that we can to try to stop a regional war from breaking out. And that regional war is on our shoulders. It's on our head. For having allowed Iran to get as powerful and as uh, and as prepared as it was, as it is right now, that we essentially helped Iran fund and arm and train these terrorist organizations because we kept giving Iran cash and we kept treating it like a normal country. So in my view, that has also failed. The whole Bush doctrine thing failed. This thing, the appeasement process also failed. My question is, when are we going to have a sensible foreign policy that Democrats and Republicans can agree upon where we're not trying to transform the region in five years or less? We're not trying to turn, you know, uh, really difficult terrain into some kind of Jeffersonian democracy. Right. We're not doing that, but we're also not appeasing our enemies and throwing money at them in the hope that they might turn into responsible stakeholders. How about we admit that both of those approaches were completely idiotic and that maybe we try to come up with a way to support our allies against our enemies and to deter these people as much as possible and to arm our friends with what they need in order to win. Yeah, as we talked about in the SEAL teams, hope is not a course of action or at least not a good course of action. No, it's good to hold on to, you know, but hey. Hope is not a course of action. And what right. I find, uh, well, we think in terms of four-year election cycles, eight-year election cycles for the very real deep thinkers among us who seem to be drawn to that sort of work. Um, but what I found fascinating is that as soon as Hamas takes power, after it's really our policies, United States policies and encouragement of Israel to support this election in Gaza, all of a sudden Hamas becomes the elected uh, representative government. And now we backpedal. It's yeah. quite quite quickly and now work against the very policy that we had advocated for. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, and you, you, I mean, that was, I mean, honestly, that moment, you're 100% right. And that moment was like the moment that, in at least in my mind, our, the whole kind of uh, Bush doctrine begins to collapse. And, you know, look, do I blame the president himself? I think we have to because he was the commander in chief at the time. Um, Condoleezza Rice, I think, as secretary of state, does deserves a lot of uh, discredit uh, for for having shepherded that decision. But there were many others as well. I, th I mean, by the way, the Israelis should have never agreed to it. They they clearly should have seen 
the dangers uh, of allowing that to happen. But look, I think the broader point here is, you know, that you, what you point out, it was a failed policy. And we just continue to see one after the other of these policies that, I mean, it. at what point really do we say, all right, guys, you know, enough of trying to be, you know, too clever by half here in the region. None of the things that we've tried to do, these, you know, sort of intellectual paradigms, none of them have worked. Maybe we just need to get back to the basics here, which is support our friends, threaten our allies, do whatever we can to try to get the balance of power right in the region with the right players. That's maybe the only game we can play. Yeah, uh, it's so tough to to watch. Um, but uh, we hear the two state solution. You hear that two state solution, two state solution. People just kind of have that in their in their mind. But when we look at 2007 and we look at Hamas conquering Gaza by force to essentially have the right to rule that they just been elected for. So the civil war that you talked about earlier, that was incredibly brutal, that no one seems to be talking about here on the, the, the news that I've seen anyway. Um, but how did that end and it certainly complicated this two-state solution that people keep repeating uh, just because they've heard it so much but it's essentially at this point if you were to look at it in those terms a three-state solution what can you comment on that i'm so glad you brought it up because honestly you know it is an orthodoxy in washington here in the swamp that i inhabit um it, it is you know they they always talk about this and it's like well we all know where this is going to have to go we all know that the only way forward is a two-state solution and what you've just pointed out is that it's already not a two-state solution right it got way complicated after hamas took over the gaza strip right ever since then what the way i always try to describe it is you've got west bankistan and hamasistan right two different countries you know, statelets, whatever you want to call it, two different governments, two different economic systems, two different sets of patrons, uh, education systems, police, right? Every possible structure is different, okay? Um, they, uh, and they, they are at odds with one another, the West Bank government and the Gaza government. They are, I mean, I think technically we could probably say they're still in a state of civil war, right? I mean, that that hostility never ended. And it's, I mean, it's funny, but I mean, you know, when you look at what's going on in the Gaza Strip right now, I I would be uh, surprised to um, uh, to to hear that Mahmoud Abbas wasn't actively cheering for Hamas's destruction. Right? I mean, the 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 hatred runs deep here. But so when you start to have people come out and say, well, you know, this only reinforces that we need a two-state solution. Now, actually, I would say up until between 2007 and 2023, we've had a three-state solution and no one has wanted to talk about it. Now what we have is kind of like a two-and-a-half-state solution because Gaza is going to be a mess for a really long time. Now, the key question is, if Israel succeeds in ousting Hamas, um, can the Palestinian Authority take it back over? Mm. Does the PA even have the ability to do it? Now, I would argue that the Palestinian Authority is deeply corrupt. It is morally bankrupt. It is utterly unpopular. And Mahmoud Abbas is now 18 years into a four-year term. <laughs> okay? Guy's 80-something years old. He's not doing well from all indications. He's weak. He's tired. He's falling asleep at meetings. Nobody wants to talk to him anymore. 
Is this really the guy that we want to put in charge of a Gaza Strip that requires, that will require billions of dollars of reconstruction and uh, and and a lot of time and care and patience to bring about a more peaceful society in this coastal enclave of the Mediterranean. I don't know how this all goes, but I will say the next time you hear somebody say, well, there's only one way forward and it's the two-state solution, I think we've just established here over the course of you know our entire discussion, it's really not that simple. Not when you have two different political systems, two different uh, uh, physical entities, and really no horizon for engagement right now. I just don't understand it. It's not to say that I don't want it. It's just I don't understand it. I don't see the mechanics of trying to build two states right now when one entity is almost in collapse because of political mismanagement in the West Bank and the other one is literally undergoing physical collapse uh, amidst a war. I just don't see a two-state reality coming out of that, at least not right now. Right. When you hear someone say that, it seems like it's something they've heard repeated so many times. They want to repeat it at the next cocktail party so that they can sound wise and semi-intellectual before they go back to yeah. their repeating. But really, but what they are is, I mean, it's it's just banality, right? I mean, it it's it, it it's like word salad at a certain point, right? Where you know people are saying things, but it's hard to imagine that they know what they're talking about or they mean it. Right. Yes, it'd be great to have a two-state solution, but tell me who we're working with right now under the current circumstances. Uh, and it's even more complicated now that there is a full-blown war going on yeah. in the region. And you touched on it earlier in your, in your books as well. So I wanted to ask you about it. Um, Arafat's death. What um, what was uh, odd about Arafat's death? Well, a lot of things. But, um, you know, look, what, what happened after Arafat declared that second intifada, right? When he declared war back in, in the year 2000, the Israelis started going after him and all the assets that he controlled that had, you know, military um you know implications uh and ultimately what happened was is that uh, arafat found himself surrounded by idf forces in uh what's known as the mukata the sort of presidential palace of ramallah the nominal capital of the west bank um and uh and really for months he found himself holed up in that uh in that compound and you know he's taken meetings with journalists by candlelight um, eating, you know, tuna out of cans, right? You get a sense of the kind of really stark conditions that he found himself in. And the Israelis just held him there. It was a siege of mm -hmm. uh, of the leadership. And, and it was done with, I think, the full blessing of the United States. Again, very similar to what we're seeing right now in the Gaza Strip, right? Uh, and I hope that we'll see the same thing, the surrounding of uh, the Hamas um, military infrastructure, which, by the way, is located under a hospital in Gaza City. Uh, there'll be some drama, I think, with the images that come out of that siege whenever it happens. But at any rate, Arafat finds himself holed up in there for months at a time, and then suddenly he falls ill. And nobody knows what's wrong with him, but he is evacuated to France, uh, and he's hospitalized, but ultimately succumbs to the illness. No one has ever said exactly what is what what, what the illness was. There's a lot of rumors out there about different kinds of illnesses that he may have had that might have indicated his sexual preferences and things like I have no idea whether any of that is true. No one seems to. But we do know that ultimately, you know, he passed away. He was kind of the George Washington 
of the Palestinian nationalist movement. He was the first uh, figurehead to emerge after the 1967 war with a vision for Palestinian nationalism. It was violent. It was brutal. It was terrorist in, in every respect. Uh, but it earned him pages in the history books of the Palestinians. And uh, then all of a sudden he's gone after this, you know, uh, kind of very odd episode. And that's when we see Mahmoud Abbas come in, the current leader who's been there now for 18 years running. Um, it's, uh, you know, and, and the real shame of it, I should just probably add this here. Abbas was seen by Bush and others as the guy that was going to be promising, a pragmatist, the guy that could possibly make a deal. Um, the longer he stayed in, especially with Hamas, uh, you know, in control of the Gaza Strip, the longer he stayed in, the less we asked of him, the fewer demands we made of him. So the idea that he could have transformed Palestinian society into something that could have been more functional completely lost the opportunity. It collapsed. Yeah. And I do want to go back quickly to the, the in the wake of the second intifada and U.S. encouraging Israel to pull out of Gaza and the West Bank just so that the links that Israel went to at this point, forcibly removing Israelis from Gaza, from their homes. I think they even they dug up some bodies out of graveyards that and they were encouraged to move in to these areas at uh, at one point. And they go back to those pre-67 borders. Um, how divided was Israel over that policy back then? Hugely divided. Um, I, I can't I can't overstate uh, how how divisive that withdrawal was. Um, and it was it was seen as um, a disaster on multiple fronts. I mean, one, it was unilateral. The Israelis did not have a partner on the other side. So they pulled out without getting any guarantees of what would be delivered in return. And um, as soon as they left, you see the Palestinians go and destroy everything that was left behind including you know valuable real estate valuable assets greenhouses things like that you see the shameful destruction of like you know israeli cemeteries uh really which was just designed to be you know an affront uh to the israelis that had left um and and then you know there's the the other part of it which is that the israeli right was fear were furious about this uh, because they didn't have a say in the matter and it was executed by um, uh, by their own in many respects. This was Ariel Sharon, who was a right of center prime minister. Um, it was his decision ultimately undertaken under some pressure from the Bush administration. Once again, you can see some of the flaws there. Um, and I'll, I'll get to the rationale in a second. But bottom line is the the the, the, the Israeli right felt the trade and when you look at some of the protests that we were watching on the streets of Israel, you know, just months ago before the outbreak of this, they're still talking about the withdrawal from Gaza and how disastrous that was and how it lacked strategy, how it lacked vision, how it was just a huge own goal, if you will. Um, now, the Israelis had a rationale, and it was one that was hammered out between Sharon and Bush at the time. And that was just that Israel, if it wanted to remain a democracy, uh, in the region. Again, you got to remember the whole democracy doctrine, right? The Bush doctrine. 
If you want to remain a democracy, then you can't control the lives of 2.2 million people. And it's time to disengage for the sake of democratic, uh, demographic continuity, right? Um, you, 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 you wash your hands of 2 million Palestinians, and then you can say, look, we are still a uh, demographically contiguous country uh, that is not you know, occupying or controlling another population. Um, and that was the rationale. What they neglected to realize is how weak the governing structures were in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority was not as strong as they had hoped. And when Hamas took over the Gaza Strip, that was the ultimate price. When Hamas took over in 2007 in that civil war that we've been talking about, that was the moment that it all fell apart that the idea that you could withdraw, even with the best of intentions, and allow your enemies to grow stronger and to maintain a safe haven, that was the mistake. And the Israelis have paid for it ever since. They've tried to sustain deterrence with Hamas firmly entrenched in the Gaza Strip. The problem is, look, you could have a war and you can weaken them. Uh, you can contain them with fences and, you know, uh, you know, surveillance and whatever other measures the Israelis have deployed. But what that ignores is that in a safe haven, your enemy is always going to be able to grow. Your enemy is always going to be able to develop new strategies and tactics because they are given the time and space. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the lesson that we learned, by the way, on 9-11, right? We allowed Al-Qaeda the opportunity to um we, we gave them the time and space to operate inside the taliban led afghanistan right as long as they were there they were able to come up with additional plans to attack america and had we destroyed the safe haven and and and, and crushed them earlier we would not have endured the attack of 9 11. this is what the israelis i think are now seeing in retrospect they allowed hamas the time and space in gaza and they just suffered their own 9 11. That's what people call the October 7th attack. It's actually even worse for the Israelis, because if you think about it, we lost, you know, almost 4,000 people on 9-11-2001. Uh, we have a population of 350 million back then. That was the estimated population of the United States. So we're looking at, a, you know, relatively, you know, I mean, a very small percentage of Americans impacted. Um, if you try to extrapolate this, for Israel, a country of only 10 million people, having lost 1,400 in one day on 10-7, that is the per capita equivalent of the United States losing 44,000 people. This is why the Israelis are so um, mobilized right now and furious. I have not yet talked to one person in Israel that was not impacted in some way by that slaughter. Everyone knows someone. It's one degree or zero degrees of separation. And uh, it's it's really hard to overstate right now the 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 scars on the psyche of the Israelis after after that attack. And again, I think it comes down to this idea that, you know, you can withdraw from a territory, you can let your enemies control that territory and somehow expect that it's not going to blow back on you. That's over. And that's the, you know, getting back to kind of your first question is how how much change are we going to see? A lot, a lot yeah. of change. Yeah. And so people, just to be clear, there was no, when Israel left, there's no ceremony, there's no doc, signing of documents. It was just a 
leaving in the, essentially in the middle of the night for, for yep. lack of, Hey, we're um, out. High five America. Hope you're proud of us. Yeah. And, um, and you know, and we were, you know, I mean, officially Washington was saying, Hey, we approve of this. And we think that it was the right thing to do. And Israel, you're doing right by your yourselves and by the Palestinians. And, you know, this is, it's the old adage that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's what we're dealing yes. with. To say nothing of the untold billions of dollars coming in from so odd Iran, the United States, and Europe into Gaza with uh, no accountability, essentially. Uh, and if you want don't to forget the Qataris, for... don't forget oh, yeah, the Turks, exactly. sure. right? I mean, sure, sure. you know, and and so there's official channels, there's unofficial channels, sure. um, but the money kept rolling in. By the way, so did the building materials that were diverted to the massive tunnel systems oh, that yeah, Hamas is currently tunnels. fighting under. Um, you know, that it's going to make all of this, this urban warfare, just that much more brutal. And of course, you know, and anyone who's followed the uh, U.S. wars in the Middle East knows how brutal the urban uh, urban warfare can be. I don't think anyone has quite seen. I think maybe we could say that the early battles uh, in Afghanistan, the sort of cave battles, it's the closest I think we can come to the kind of underground terrain that the Israelis are going to likely have to contend with. Yeah, but the money coming in that we're giving to Iran, that we're giving to Gaza, that Europe is, and all the other countries that you mentioned. I mean, it's 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 a, it's fascinating uh, that side of it. It'll have to be really looked at going forward if someone will actually spend the time and come up with a, some sort of a coherent policy. But uh, off of that. Where did the narr the narrative of this occupation? We've just talked about 2005, 2006, 2007, Israel leaving Gaza, being ruled by Hamas. Uh, where did this occupation narrative come from that people keep repeating in the news over and over? Right. College professors keep repeating. These people keep repeating on microphones and on these college campuses. This occupation, if, if, certainly if you go back 2005, 2006, 2007, it certainly hasn't been true since then, if you can at least do that part yeah. of it. Well, um, certainly occupation it, narrative yeah. come from. Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at the Gaza Strip um, between 2007 and, you know, October, whatever it is, October 31st, I think was when or 30th when the uh, ground invasion began. Um, it was not an occupation. The Israelis controlled their borders um, and uh, the Israelis controlled a perimeter uh, around the Gaza Strip out in the ocean in the Mediterranean. So they were controlling what would come in and out, but there was nothing on the ground. There were no troops. There was no attempt to uh, determine the daily lives of the 2.2 million people living in Gaza. So there's a question there about the sort of accuracy of calling it an occupation. But then I look, there's the, the broader question, which is when you look at the West Bank and Gaza from 1967, when Israel conquers it until today, you know, people call it an occupation. Um, yes, there are Israeli soldiers that are spread throughout the West Bank, and there are different roads that are being used to ensure that Israelis are able to travel in peace without being attacked. Um, and, you know, there are there are pieces of infrastructure that are in place that are clear signs of Israeli uh, military uh, presence and even dominance. Um, but the idea that it's fully occupied is, a, is an odd one. This is a disputed territory, in, in, and I think if we're going to be as precise as possible, that is what we should be calling it all the time, right? The Palestinians were supposed to get that territory pursuant to the, um, the partition plan that we discussed already 
from 1948, but instead the territory was occupied by Jordan and Egypt. Jordan took over the West Bank, Egypt took over Gaza Strip, and that was the case for 20 years, two decades, okay? Then the Israelis win, win a war against the Jordanians and the Egyptians and uh, the Syrians. It was a uh, preemptive strike based on aggression by Israel's enemies. And that, um, that fact is often overlooked. That fact is often just completely cast aside when people talk about the Israeli presence there. Um, and the Israelis have tried, you mentioned the three no's. The Israelis have tried to uh, engage with the Arab states and with the Palestinians on multiple occasions, offering deals in which these two territories would be traded for peace. The three no's of 1967 from the Arab League in Khartoum in Sudan was a rejection of that principle. And the Palestinian rejection of the Camp David uh, uh, talks in 2000. Another example of this, when you've tried to give back the territory, maybe even give back is a strong word. If you want to give the territory to the other side and the other side says no, repeatedly, then whose fault is it right now? And, and can you blame the Israelis for remaining there, especially in light of the fact that when they left unilaterally in Gaza, as we've already discussed, it led to disaster, right? So if you can't leave with an agreement because no one will agree with you on your terms and you can't leave unilaterally because you see what happens when you leave without a plan, then you stay. And if you don't have anybody to work with, then you have to control what you can. And that's unfortunately what the Israelis have been doing now for, uh, for basically more than 50 years. Since the 1967 war, they have sustained control. Now look, to be very clear, there are people in Israel that just say, yeah, we should just own this. This should be ours. We should annex this. And uh, they're on the right side of the spectrum. The people on the left side of the spectrum say we need to keep working to a two-state solution. The Israelis are not of one mind on this. But I think we can say without question that no matter how this goes, you need to have somebody who's pragmatic on the other side to make compromises and to actually have the skill sets to be able to run this territory without allowing it to collapse or to be taken over by groups like Hamas, as we've seen in the past. Yeah. I know I've kept you past your, your time, uh, so I want to have a ton more questions for you, but uh, people need to go out and buy all three of your books and read these books and uh, really deep dive into this. Turn off the Twitter and turn off the TV, get into the pages of these books to really build a, a foundation of understanding um, if, they, if they want to engage uh, in any sort of debate or maybe cast a vote based on what is uh, is going on in that part of the world. But it starts from an understanding. Um, and so thank you for spending so much time with me today. I sincerely appreciate it. But uh, to round things out, and I had a whole bunch of other questions, but I'll let people go into the pages of your of your books for those uh, for that understanding. Um, was October 7th, do you think this is a Pyrrhic victory? Is it possible that it will lead to Hamas's extinction as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan and the United States side of the house it is very difficult to uh to destroy an organization like this that's based an idea where at the same time that you're taking out leadership senior level leadership mid-level leadership lower level leadership you're also creating 
more uh, terrorists or insurgents at the same time, um, just because of the length of these things and uncles and aunts and kids seeing what's happening to their families. Um, just the nature of warfare in and of itself, especially in insurgency. But well, could it possibly lead to Hamas's complete demise? Look, I think from what I can tell, that is the goal. I mean, clearly it's the Israeli goal and they've said so. Oh. They've been explicit about it. Uh, but from what I can tell, U.S. policy is also to try to drive that outcome, uh, which is, I think, something of a surprise. But I, I welcome one, I think, that there was a realization that perhaps it was U.S. policy that led to this in the first place and that maybe, you know, this is the way to try to correct uh, past mistakes. From what I can tell right now, the U.S. has deployed these carrier groups and Marines and all the other military assets that we have in the region right now to deter a wider war, right, to prevent Iran and Hezbollah in particular from getting involved in this uh, in this battle. And that if things work out the right way, um, you know, Israel will be allowed to fight Hamas in isolation. And if and when they win, they remove an Iranian chess piece off the board and Hamas uh, will be gone. Iran will have had to watch helplessly while that happened. Same with Hezbollah. This would, I think, probably clear the path for, uh, I think, Israel to begin to think about the next phase of its war, tackling other enemies, um, possibly preemptively. Uh, certainly, there'll be talk about you know what to do about Iran, which stands behind all of this as the financier and the the provider of weapons and and the, the the state entity that was training these fighters, that's going to also be on the table. But I think, you know, if if everybody has their way right now, you see a, you know, look, it's not going to be a clean victory in the sense that, you know, we could be watching the war unfold in Gaza for several weeks before it's all said and done, maybe even months. But when it's all said and done, the uh, I think the goal is to say Gaza's been cleaned out. And now you can begin to rebuild something without the Hamas presence. And then from there, you know, it's order of battle. What does Israel begin to look at next in terms of the threats that, that it faces in the region? The big question, I think, is how long the U.S. will remain there um, militarily and how long the U.S. will remain uh, steadfastly in Israel's corner as, you know, the cries of, uh, of the Arab world are, are heard. Um, and the protests that take place on American campuses and the sort of public opinion debate uh, fed by, uh, again, I think, you know, our deeply flawed media narratives. But nevertheless, I think that's probably the next um, kind of big crossroads for the U.S. Yeah. And if these carrier battle groups, I suspect there's something heading up into the, the Persian Gulf area as I believe well. there is. I the believe there is already. Uh, to Iran. Yeah, I haven't seen that in the news, but I would guess. But it's probably out there. I just haven't, haven't seen it. Um, so I would guess. If that keeps Iran and Hezbollah as much at bay as possible and keeps this from turning into a, a broader conflict, I would certainly expect that Israel will reevaluate its uh, past policies and uh, not let Hezbollah in the north just continue to hey, get more rockets and get more advanced and more training to do essentially what happened in Gaza. So um, we'll see what happens as far as broader conflicts or what Israel does next. And I know you have to go. Um, were you shocked? Last question. Were you were you shocked by the amount of uh, anti-Israel comments in the U.S. on news channels on college camp. We knew, I mean, 
for me, I put these different uh, terrorist events uh, on my social media, just historical references to things that have that have happened in this history of, of terrorism. Um, and there's always comments in there about Israel because a lot of them happened over there in the in the beginning before I get to some of the ones that were more focused on the United States. Um, so I talk about those uh, terrorist uh, events that happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And there's always a few comments um, in there that uh, highlight support for whatever terrorist organization carried out these attacks against innocent civilians. Um, were you shocked at the amount of, uh, or because you've studied this area for so long and are so in tune with uh, with, with politics, where you live, uh, was it not shocking to you the amount of uh, of rhetoric supporting Hamas, su essentially supporting these atrocities, uh, yeah. politicians and students and protesters, uh, not just in the United States, but even across the world, Sydney, Berlin, London, yeah. uh, Paris. Yeah. Uh, were, were you shocked at the amount or did it not surprise you? Look, the only thing shocking about it was the full extent of um, of support voiced to Hamas, you know, just days after a slaughter of 1400 people. That seemed shocking to me. Um, you know, I've, I've never seen I don't think any of us have seen anything quite that just I mean, I mean, it was a murder orgy. Right. I mean, the, the way that thing unfolded is just I mean, it's it's horrific. Right. And the idea that you'd have people coming out shortly after that slamming israel for responding to an attack of that you know uh gravity is um that i found surprising you'd think that the world would just sort of say "Ooh, that's really ugly and yeah this this absolutely justifies a full-throated response that said what doesn't surprise me is there is an entire network of uh you know sort of Twitter trolls and intellectuals in Washington and, you know, public figures around the Arab world and in Europe that mobilize every time Hamas goes to war. And I have been on the receiving end of attacks because I report things that they don't like on Twitter or elsewhere. Um, and I'm not alone. There are plenty of other people that get targeted in this way. There's an attempt to cancel people. There's an attempt to scare people. There's an attempt to threaten people. Um, and to really just shout down critics uh, in social media in particular. But but there's also a mobilization of mouthpieces that somehow um, are readily accepted on on American airwaves. Um, and and it's just it's an unfortunate pattern that uh, that I've seen. And I think it'd be really interesting for someone out there to conduct an assessment of who this network is, where they come from, how they're funded. This, I got to say, right now seems like a really important question to ask in the in the in the era of information warfare and cognitive warfare. Uh, you know, as we see the Chinese doing it and the Russians doing it. You know, and they're trying to manipulate us in every way. In some ways, these guys are like the OG, as they say, right? I mean, these guys have been doing it now for for more than a decade and a half, and they're good at it. They really have a playbook. And so in that sense, not surprising. It's just really the surprise that what I'm surprised about is is the just the sheer ugly nature of what happened on 10-7 and the complete inability to even harbor some understanding or have a willingness to justify what any country on earth would be justified in doing in response to something like that. So anyway, uh, it's a sad reflection, unfortunately, of the media environment that we're in. But I do think also an accurate reflection of 
the cognitive warfare that's being waged on the American mind. Well, I agree. And and, uh, and thank you for spending so much time with me today. Thank you for writing these books and uh, adding to uh, not just mine, but every reader's foundation of uh, understanding of what's going on in that part of the world. So thank you so much for, for doing that. And thank you for spending so much time with me today. I sincerely appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can talk again soon uh, under better circumstances, perhaps. Hope so. All right. Take care. All Thanks right. so much. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Jonathan Shanzer, be sure to follow him on Twitter at J-S-C-H-A-N-Z-E-R. Also go to Foundation for Defense of Democracy, and that is FDD.org. And be sure to pick up State of Failure, Hamas versus Fatah, and Gaza Conflict 2021. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. OfficialJackCar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you got something out of this podcast, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.